<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We also have seen the movement of the large law firms and the banks out of LaSalle Street and closer to the river and closer to the Fulton Market. That's good investment for the city of Chicago, but the backfill and the strategy for that backfill remains a big challenge. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is Chicago's foremost expert on municipal finance, Lawrence Massal, president of the Chicago Civic Federation. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Fran. Great to be here. Earlier this week, Mayor Lori Lightfoot unveiled the 2023 city budget that will serve as her platform for re-election, she hopes. It's a $16.4 billion document that for the most part sustains the unprecedented 30% surge in city spending last year that was made possible by the $1.9 billion avalanche of federal stimulus funds. How do you feel about that? Shouldn't Chicago be starting to kind of wean itself off this money and shrink that enormous increase, preparing for the day that's coming soon when this once in a lifetime federal money will be drying up and Chicago needs to go it alone. Definitely, we just received the budget yesterday, as you said, and so we are digging into it. But our initial reaction is that there has been an extraordinary economic recovery in terms of revenue for the city of Chicago. Now, some of the things that are built into the economic recovery really rely on further return to work, especially in our convention industry, especially in the hospitality restaurants downtown. But overall, what we see in this budget is a fairly meaningful investment in some key areas and no tax increases. And so there is a lot to be said positively for the taxpayers in this budget. It is true that there is some federal relief money that is still working its way through. The city has promised that when that federal relief money that is going to ongoing programs um, runs out, they will either end that those programs or they will identify new revenue for it. Either way, the city needs to be prepared to cut or adjust accordingly. There is no room for a lot of big tax increases, not now and not recently for Chicago. We have the highest sales tax of any major metropolitan area. We have the highest, one of the highest property taxes um, of any place in the United States. And we, are, we have a litany of other fees and taxes that we lead the country in. Our initial reaction to the mayor's budget proposal is it is very good news. And there are some strategic investments that we agree with, especially the decision to put almost a quarter of a billion dollars extra into the local pension funds, 
We'd rather have significant pension reform at the state level, consolidation, and really move forward on that. But while we're waiting for that to happen in Springfield or urging that to happen, the fact that the city's going to provide $242 million in advance payments to the local pension funds so they don't have to sell assets in a down market so that they can stabilize is a strategic and smart investment, we think. We'll talk about that pension plan in a moment, but you mentioned the back-to-work situation. You also mentioned McCormick Place as potential concerns. People are not totally back to work. The office swipes are at about 40-some-odd percent. Is it fair to assume that's going to keep going up, up? Maybe the world has changed. I think you're right. The world has is changing, always in the process of changing. We do have a very much a downtown challenge of getting what used to be very significant office workers back to the loop. Whether that will ever be five days a week is a big question. And so that then bears on the strength of the real estate market, which, as you know, in Cook County, heavily relies on commercial property to pay more than their fair share so that the residences can only pay 10% in Cook County on their assessment. That is the biggest challenge that we see at the Civic Federation is the reopening and how that is intertwined with public safety and the perception of public safety and what we're doing to make sure that the entire city is safe and policed in a constitutional way, in a way that protects all citizens. The mayor unveiled a plan just a few weeks ago to start using incentives to convince the owners of some of these pretty much empty LaSalle Street buildings in the financial corridor. There used to be such a bevy of activity, a historic Chicago corridor, to turn their buildings into affordable housing. Is that going to do it? Is that what the city ought to be doing to lure people back? Or is there something more you think the city needs to do to lure people back to the office, or can they? Well, certainly the office building owners are struggling in the downtown, especially in the South LaSalle corridor, in terms of getting occupancy back to some sort of sustainable level. Opening it up to housing is an important option. There's still a great attractiveness for housing, and there is a housing shortage throughout the city and the region. So making it easier for previous office buildings to convert to residential and also not just affordable, but market rate so that they can actually afford it is an important step. It is not going to be a panacea. We are still seeing, as you pointed out, a significant number of companies whose workers are not required to be back in the office five days a week. Very few large companies are requiring their employees to be back in the office five days a week. That shrinks their footprint in terms of what they need for office space. We also have seen the movement of the large law firms and the banks out of LaSalle Street and closer to the river and closer to the Fulton Market. That's good investment for the city of Chicago, but the backfill and the strategy for that backfill remains a big challenge. On top of that is the perception of crime and the perception of safety that many people feel. Less people in the loop makes it feel less safe to many people and allows for bad things to happen. We are pleased that in the mayor's proposed budget, there is $100 million in new investments in police and police-related investments. So that we see some promise. We are just getting our hands around this enormous $14 billion operating budget. So I'm sorry, it's an $11.8 billion on the um, 
budget if you exclude grants. So we're just getting our arms around that. We are going to continue to dig deep into it. We're going to finish our analysis and then make recommendations to the mayor. But the number of sworn officers is way, way down from when she took office. We have now 11,623 sworn officers in the Chicago Police Department compared to 13,353 just before she took office. She balanced her early, one of her pandemic budgets, with by eliminating 614 police vacancies. We see police exams that used to draw thousands of officers, potential officers, drawing dozens instead. So how are we gonna build this back up? How do you lure police officers back to Chicago and stop the exodus to the suburbs, to other states, to retirement? Those are the challenges that not just the city of Chicago, but cities all over the country are facing. There is a significant exodus from policing. There's a significant retirement effort. If you look at the demographic of the Chicago police, it is an older police force heading toward the 50s and older. You can retire in Chicago with full benefits at about 50. So that is a Democrat demographic we would be fighting before COVID, before many of the much of the unrest and much of the concern about unconstitutional policing. The Civic Federation really looks to the consent decree that the city of Chicago is under under a federal federal monitored consent decree. That is the path forward. But that requires more police, it requires community-based policing. It requires more training, more retraining, more significant investment. That is going to be the path forward. Chicago's not alone. Many cities are seeing a dramatic drop in police, in their police force and their ability to recruit. But Chicago is going to have to come up with its own strategy to make people understand and want to do that job. And that job can also, we can add to the police ranks by taking away administrative positions, some of the, in, by and allowing non-sworn officers, non-policemen to carry out some of the administrative functions in the city police department. That is a, has a potential benefit. It's not a sole answer. We need to recruit constitutionally trained and consent decree appropriate new police for Chicago. One of the new programs initiated last year that you were particularly concerned about was the $31.5 million guaranteed minimum income program. This is a program that gives 5,000 of Chicago's neediest families 500 in cash every month, no strings attached. The mayor touted that program in her address. She didn't say if she had any intention of renewing it, but in her meeting later in the day with the Sun-Times editorial board, she said the program was intended to be a one-time pilot and left little doubt that it would be allowed to expire deep into 2023 when it's over. Is that the right call? I think so. I think the, the mayor and many public officials were experimenting with ways to provide relief to our citizens in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of the economic disruption from the pandemic. The If we're not going to find new revenue sources to replace that $31 million, if there isn't the urgency in providing that relief because there is a high level of vacancy in many positions within the city, especially in the service areas and the hospitality industry, it's a good plan to basically let it run its course. If not, the city would have to cut somewhere else or they would have to find new revenue. And as we've said, there are very few easy options for the city of Chicago in terms of raising new taxes or fees. 
Do you think the federal government lavished too much money on cities and states? It's rather clear now from the robust recovery that we didn't need all that money. Isn't it at least in part fueling inflation and maybe was it too much? It's very hard to, to look back objectively and say what would have been enough. The Civic Federation supported the federal government providing revenue support to not just the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois, but to all cities and states throughout the country. The federal government does not have the precision to basically say, we're going to give you this million or this 10 million and you're gonna use it for that. They make general pass-throughs to the states and local government. They did put some restrictions and some of them were targeted at Illinois so that we couldn't use the money for pension, couldn't be just deposited into the pension funds, couldn't be used to pay previous debt that had been issued. But generally, we are seeing a much- get around that with transferring money and using free money freed up in the corporate front. They got around that. that. Certainly, the, there's a great deal of fungibility in terms of the city budget, in terms of where money is placed. But going back to your, your point, was it too much? It's hard to say it was too much because we're not fully out of this economic disruption from the pandemic. And we don't know, for example, where inflation is going to go and where the economy is going to but go. But didn't it fuel inflation to print money like this, to just lavish it on cities and states? Again, the trade-off was whether you wanted to keep people working, keep them safe in their homes while they were working remotely, while you are trying to deal with a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. It, without a doubt, has fueled some financial challenges for the federal government going forward, the level of debt, the pressure in terms of inflation, but it also served to very meaningfully protect cities and states across the country, allow them to maintain core services, allow for us to get through the pandemic. We are not done with the economic disruption from the pandemic. We're not even done with the COVID spreading and the risk to other people. We still have to stay safe. We still have to take the vaccines and we still have to see how it works its way as Chicago reopens and the state of Illinois reopens. Now, the mayor's budget includes $2.6 billion in contributions to the four city employee pension funds. That's up $334.3 million from last year and more than double the $1.2 billion contribution in 2018. It includes that $40 million upfront payment from Bally's who got the right to build that $1.7 billion permanent casino in River West and a temporary one at Madonna Temple in River North. But on top of that mandatory pension payment, the mayor is proposing to spend $242 million to launch what she called a new pension fund policy of prepaying future pension fund obligations. It's akin to paying down your credit card balance. You were really happy about this. Why? Why? Because it's a strategic investment by the city of Chicago. And putting $242 million more in the pension funds, while it sounds like an enormous amount of money, and it is going to allow for some stabilization of the pension funds. It's important to note that the Chicago Fire Department pension is only 20% funded, and it owes $5.6 billion in unfunded liability. The Chicago Police Fund is only 24% funded. That means we only have basically 24 cents on the dollar for what is owed to the policemen when they retire. The laborers fund is 44% and the municipal fund is 22%. This will allow the funds 
by advancing this $242 million extra payment. It's important to note, Illinois is one of the few states that does not fund its pensions according to what's actuarially required to get it back to 100%. Instead, it is a statutory formula derived from some actuarial calculations. The city has made progress in moving to an actuarial-based funding contribution, but it's still not over the cliff. With the market conditions the way they are, what we expect to see is there will be significant losses potentially in some of the pension funds. This extra $242 million will avoid the pension funds having to sell assets in the down market in order to pay the benefits going forward. We would and this much is better than pension obligation bonds that Rahm Emanuel touted to the tune of $10 billion, even though he never convinced the city council to do it? Mayor Emanuel gets credit for trying to address the pension situation and making some improvements. The idea of a pension obligation bond was with significant risk. The difference between this, which is taking $242 million in available revenue and putting it right in the pension fund, rather than borrowing for it, is you don't have the risk of what happens if you the market turns further downward and you have to pay back the interest on that borrowing, on that pension obligation bond. So you would this is a much more straightforward approach to trying to stabilize them in the short term. Long term, we still need a strategy for how the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois are going to deal with their enormous debt. We are paying way too large a percentage of the operating budget into pension and pension-related debt. Right, and the mayor has made precious little progress on pension reform. Early on, she floated a plan for a state takeover of Chicago pension funds. She was shot down by the governor, with whom she has had a rather strained relationship at, at times. She talked during the campaign about a real estate transfer tax on high-end home sales to bankroll not only affordable housing and reduce homelessness, but for also perhaps for the pension funds. That went nowhere. She's talked about a tax on retirement income. She's talked about extending the sales tax to services. No progress on any of those fronts. In fact, the General Assembly made the pension crisis in Chicago very much worse by sweetening the firefighters pension fund in a way that Lightfoot claims will saddle beleaguered property taxpayers with $823 million in additional costs by 2055. So isn't the mayor's novel idea taking some pressure off Springfield? Don't we need to address this problem once and for all, and if so, how? Clearly all roads lead to Springfield when it comes to the legislature and what they're willing to do. The city of Chicago's pension funds, which are in dire shape, but local pension funds all throughout the state of Illinois, from Peoria to Rockford, they're all facing enormous pressure on their budgets to fund their pensions. We have not had much success in getting the Illinois General Assembly to address either their own pension crisis or the local governments. An answer that the mayor floated is strongly supported by the Civic Federation, which is that there is a state responsibility to these local funds. State statute was used to create these pension funds. State statute dictated that they not follow actuarial basis, but instead they follow for many years a multiplier. State statute dictates who can be on the pension fund, how, what the, who the members are, what the contribution levels are, and even what the benefits can be. So it definitely demands a state answer and a response by the General Assembly. In what? Terms what is the state answer? 
the state answer should be as the state looks at its own financial condition, as it looks how interlinked local government conditions are, to the state needs to go take more steps. Governor Pritzker took an important step three years ago when he rolled up many of the smaller police and fire pension funds investment oversight into one state board. They, the next step would be to take over the local police and fire pension funds and municipal pension funds and have the locals manage the actual obligation, the current obligation and the unfunded liability should be absorbed by the state. Only the state has the broad breadth of tax potential and financial strength to take that on. If we don't do that, then we will continue to see local governments making very difficult decisions about whether to raise property taxes to fund essential services or raise property taxes to fund more pension contributions. It is not sustainable to have 25% and in some cases even more of your operating budget going into your pension and pension related debt. And so what should the funding source be? The, the, fund, the funding source is, a, if you were willing to do that, if you were willing to look at a full consolidation of the local pension funds, for example, as they do in Wisconsin, they don't have 600 separate administrators of their local police and fire funds. They have this one singular pension fund. There would be significant savings. But in terms of what is what would be source of revenue, it's the same sources of revenue the state usually turns to, the state income tax. There certainly is a tie-in to Illinois being an outlier and not taxing retirement income from any source. So regardless of whether you're a pensioner or a multimillionaire who has millions of dollars in investments, you pay no Illinois state income tax. Most Illinois residents aren't fully aware they don't pay any state income tax on their retirement income. The federal government taxes retirement income. Illinois is one of the few states that doesn't tax any amount of retirement income. And what about a service tax or a constitutional amendment? Certainly those should be on the table as well. But again, it requires the Illinois General Assembly, which showed its ability to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot this November that deals with workers' rights, that prevents Illinois from ever being a right-to-work state. That was able to get on the ballot quite easily without no opposition. Yet a constitutional amendment to address the pension crisis is almost stuck in the mud down in Springfield. Very little action on the two core issues that drive local government finances and the state's financial health, pensions and property taxes. And both are intertwined, especially at the local level. Let's talk about some of the other red flags. The mayor is declaring a $395 million tax increment financing surplus, the largest TIF surplus in Chicago history, and $124 million larger than last year's surplus. $218 million goes to the schools, 98.3 to the city. This is one-time revenue. Not a good idea. We definitely want to see from the mayor's team what the, how, what the math and what their homework was and how they came to this extraordinary level of a tax increment financing surplus. It begs the question whether we have TIFs that are so overperforming that we have such large surpluses as whether we can maybe consolidate those TIFs if they're living or they're actually generating more revenue than they need for their initial investments and redevelopment. It raises a question, you're right, it's a one-time revenue source. Do we expect that property tax values to continue to grow at that extraordinary level within the TIFs, we need to see the assumptions that are based on that. In the short term, it's great relief to the Chicago public schools, and it provides, as you said, 
$98 million to help balance the city's budget. There's no guarantee that it'll be there next year. We want to see what the plan is for going forward. There's also the mayor's decision to carry over $220 million from this year's $318 million budget surplus compared to just $50 million a year ago and count it as revenue. Again, not a good idea. What happens if the economy slows down? That's trouble. Right. It's a risk that if you basically rely on that, this surplus is going to be available next year. And in fact, your revenue doesn't perform or you're not able to hold the line on expenses where you have unexpected expenditures, then you will not have it and you will see a budget cliff to that amount. It is a very significant jump in terms of the, the unfunded balance. I'm sorry, the surplus balance from this year being added. We would like to see more of the detail in what the what other governments are looking at in terms of their projections for revenue growth. Also, only $100 million set aside for police overtime, even though the Chicago Police Department spent $130 million on it two years ago with a relentless string of canceled days off. Once again, is that truth in budgeting? I think they, you can budget at $100 million, but if you don't have the police to basically service what is needed, if there's a crisis, if there is a challenge, that's a bigger question. We'd rather see more money being invested in police attraction, police training, getting more officers, new officers into the program. We talked a little bit about the aging of the Chicago police force and the likely retirements that we're seeing all over the country. So it needs to be a balance. There is no doubt that Chicago will be struggling for a while to attract new police officers, get them constitutionally trained, get them to fulfill all the goals of the consent decree so that we can keep everyone safe in a constitutional way. We need to make sure that Chicago has a strategy that attracts enough police, that the incentives are there. It's a market-driven phenomenon, so we're going to have to offer more to get people to serve in the police department. That is an important and a top priority from the Civic Federation and from the business community generally is policing and public safety. But when I asked her about incentives as proposed by some of the aldermen, the mayor said, we can't do that without running afoul of collective bargaining agreements and have other unions say, me too. Do you agree with that? Or do you think the city should be offering incentives to lure more police officers who have left back to Chicago and get more people to apply? It's a tough job to be a Chicago policeman. It's a tough job to be a policeman anywhere. There are many tough jobs in the city government. So it is a balancing act. But there is no area of the city right now in terms of employment that is more challenging than policing. So yes, we think there needs to be significant incentives. If that means sitting down with a police union to basically get them to understand what we're trying to achieve, if that means taking a line that not every position in the city government as is essential as a policeman may be important, maybe in, I think a recognition of that we are existing still coming out of a pandemic. The policemen came in and did their job every day. They didn't get to work virtually or remotely. We need to recognize that they are tired, that there are a significant number, as was pointed out by the inspector general, that they have been going without vacations for days for too long of a period. We need more police. I believe that it is a priority for the city to make sure that we're going to have um, enough police. We need creative strategies to go against the national trend, which is the difficulty in attracting police. So yes, it should be a top priority for the city 
and there is some things in the budget that has the superintendent doing more to get more police in the city. What incentives do you favor? Like what kinds of things? Is assigning bonus, housing assistance? What do you propose? Um, there are a lot of things, as you point out, that make it that could make it more attractive. There could be incentives, some by the city government to help with financing. There's a lot of interest in the business community to provide assistance, to provide recognition. It could be educational oriented. Right now, there are major academic institutions that provide secondary and college institutions in Chicago that provide incentives and recognize the service of Chicago's first responders and providing scholarships. Some of that could be done. Housing assistance would always be an attractive financing for that assistance. It's really just a prioritization of what the city believes it needs and a conversation with both the, the union as well as prospective military and other people that are interested in joining the police, what would make it more attractive for them to pick Chicago over other places to serve? Are you saying that we should use incentives just to lure people back? Or do you think we need to increase the number of sworn officers as well and restore those vacancies she cut? I think the biggest challenge is, are we getting enough new police officers to come to Chicago to begin serving? Re recruiting people back is a short-term strategy because of the, the age limitations. They're unlikely that people have left the district that have mid 20 years left of service. We need to be focusing on the police of the future and the police that we can train right now and making sure that we are keeping up with the retirement levels of our police as well as just the lack of recruits. But it has to be done in the with recognition and our eye on the consent decree as to that we are going to be promoting the most appropriate and best candidates that are going to be trained and then retrained and basically appropriately staffed, managed and overseen to do constitutional policing. All of that is based on an idea of community-based policing, which requires a significant level of police force that we need to maintain. Our point is that we should be investing now to keep up with it. There's been some relative good news coming out of the police department that they have been getting more people into the academy, but we have not seen objectively all the details of that information. Recycling is still stuck in the single digit, yet all the city proposes is introducing citywide drop-off locations to help reduce landfill waste. Is that enough? Do we need volume-based garbage collection fees as an incentive or penalties to get the ship righted once and for all? We definitely need to be providing incentives to our own residents and making it as easy as possible for residents to recycle. It's been proven time and again that Chicago residents are happy to recycle, whether it's newspaper, plastic, if they're given the tools. And also, they, we make it too easy to fill our landfills when we don't have an, act, a, an active recycling program. So we should look at volume-based pricing for garbage. We should also look at incentives to get people to recycle. And we should be working with various neighborhood environmental groups to promote it in Chicago. Drop-offs are not a bad idea, but it requires a lot more effort than many of the residents will take. They'll continue as long as it's easy to mix their waste with their recycling, and that will not be effective for the city. Should there be penalties on people who don't recycle? 
I think there has to be a balance. I think definitely I would start more with incentives, more with education. And as we've said, there has been a lot of information out there that people want to recycle. It is very popular in the surrounding communities of the city. It's very surrounding in many other places. So Chicago has been slow to to fully embrace and to make it easy for its residents. We need to move forward on that. Volume-based garbage collection fees. That is one way to basically get people to pay attention to what they're putting in the waste stream as opposed to what they're putting in the recycling stream. Before we go, are you concerned about the casino generating the revenue the city expects and also the timing of approval and getting it done and up and running, both the temporary one and the permanent? I think there are big challenges with the casino. It is historically gambling is not a a very reliable source of government and government funding. The Civic Federation has not weighed in, mostly because of the process of how it was sped through the legislature in Springfield. But the bigger challenge is, why don't we have a plan for this? For those aldermen who insist on aldermanic prerogative, that we can't have a citywide plan, this is a perfect example of what would have been better if we had a a citywide development plan, if we basically tied our zoning to a plan that allowed for an entertainment district. It wouldn't come as a surprise as to where the casino would be located because it would have been vetted in advance without the pressure of saying we need to get this up and running because we're losing money. The casino is going to be a an attraction for some, but for many people, it will not be a significant attraction. How it ties into the convention and tourism and hospitality industry remains a question. That should be the top priority, that we not only attract people who want to gamble, but we also maintain the character of Chicago and that we continue to be a first-class convention center and tourism attraction. And finally, we haven't heard anything more about the Red Line South TIF that the mayor wants to create, using property tax growth in the downtown area and using it to fund that two-some-odd-billion-dollar extension to 130th Street. Do you like that idea? Are you concerned about it? We have a lot of concerns, and we think there's some very significant policy issues surrounding this. One is, why are we left with having to raise property taxes in order to fund our public transit, when historically the state, city, county, the RTA, have relied on sales tax and sales tax receipts and other sources to fund it? To shift what has been a core infrastructure need onto the property tax rule through TIFs is a big policy change. It also raises the question, if the downtown business district, which is being heavily relied on to fund this, is the appropriate source for that. Shouldn't it be spread more evenly throughout? But a bigger challenge is, what's the long-term plan? If for this we rely on a tax increment financing district, and again, there is some precedent for doing this under the Emanuel administration in order to rebuild the the portion of the of the right but of, not the robbing peter to pay paul aspect of it and it was also at a time when we did not have a major capital program for the city of, for the state of illinois and the opportunity for local match i think that needs to be really vetted so we're not opposed to the expansion of the of the red line out to like this funding means 
we think that to be equitable, it needs to be spread more evenly to the immediate beneficiaries. And I don't, we don't necessarily agree that property taxes are the only way to fund CTA improvements. We'd like to see more engagement by the state of Illinois. We'd like to see it a higher priority for the capital investments of the state of Illinois and the RTA. Lawrence Massall, thank you so much for joining us and spreading your knowledge about the city budget and all things municipal finance with us again. And we will see you all next week. Thank you. And thank you to the hardest working reporter at the hardest working newspaper. Take care. (laughs) 